0: Imagine not knowing what your income would be each week. Financial planning would be a nightmare. Almost 90% of Vision's income is free will donations. When supporters commit to monthly giving, it provides greater certainty when budgeting for regular expenses and weighing up new opportunities that arise. Knowing we can rely on regular gifts each month takes some of the guesswork out of operating a faith ministry monthly givers who share our mission are called visionary extra mile partners and right now you're invited to join this growing group of faithful supporters the amount of your tax-deductible monthly gift is completely up to you what is most important is knowing that you are standing with us to reach australia for the gospel click the banner at vision.org.au or in the vision app to find out more about becoming a visionary extra mile partner It only takes a few minutes, but will have an eternal impact. Vision.
1: Audio on demand from Vision Christian Media.
0: The Story.
1: You know, we couldn't be, I couldn't have been a more prepared mother to be, so I had the nursery decked out, I had everything prepared, checking into a private hospital to have my baby. I'd thought of everything except the impact that having a baby could have on someone with bipolar. No one had sort of mentioned to me to look out for anything. I'd told my obstetrician I had bipolar, it was sort of noted down in my file, but yeah, nothing, no warning kind of that something could go wrong.
2: G'day, I'm Jimmy Colfax. Welcome to The Story. Today, our guest is once again Mariska Meldrum. Last time we talked to her about how she was born blind in one eye, but then in her early 30s she had surgery and miraculously she could see better than ever before. Today we're going to find out more of her story, and this time focusing on mental health challenges she's faced after being diagnosed with bipolar disorder in her teenage years. Once again,
3: Mariska is having a chat with Eric Scadabo. Riska Meldrum, welcome back to the program.
1: Thank you for having me.
3: Glad to have you with us once again. And yes, so you, you mentioned last time mental illness was a part of your story. Now we want to zero in on that a little bit more. When did you know that something was not quite right?
1: Um, my first experience with mental illness was just after I finished year 12 in high school. And so I'd had a year of, you know, a lot of stress. I was pretty high kind of achiever. So I'd pushed myself really hard in year 12, got to the end of the exams. The same time, you know, I had some issues going on at home. My dad was a pastor and our church had undergone you know, some troubles and a split. So quite a high-pressure year, and I got to the end of it, and I actually went away, and while I was away, found that I couldn't sleep and um, for Why quite a that? few nights. I didn't know. I just couldn't get to sleep, and so that went on for a couple of nights. Do and you think it
3: was all the pressure and everything that was going on at that time in your life?
1: Yeah, yeah, possibly. And so I was away. I couldn't sleep, and then... At the time, I had um, friends and a boyfriend, and my boyfriend kind of noticed that I wasn't quite myself anymore. And as the days went on, while we we're all away, noticed that my mind and what I was saying wasn't quite making sense anymore. Oh well. Wow. And so, got back home, and he kind of said to my parents, "Something's not quite right here." And so, they took me to um, my GP, who kind of said to my parents, "Oh, she's." been on drugs. like she's obviously that's what teenagers wow. do. and my parents were like, no, you don't know our daughter. you know, we don't think she's on drugs, and we don't think she would take drugs. Um, you know, I'd grown up in a Christian home, Christian school, and they kind of knew me, you know, mm-hmm. they knew yeah. me well and they, and they said, no, yeah, we want. and so they said we want, you know, further tests. And so they end up doing all these tests, brain scans, um cat scans, all sorts of things. and um at the end of the day kind of said, uh, we believe she has bipolar disorder and she's having a manic episode, cute mm. manic episode. And so I got medication and sort of snapped out of it and came right. And I remember at the end of it kind of going, what's happened? And mm. um, the specialist said to me, you know, in your family, there's a history of bipolar disorder and sometimes a period of intense stress when you're sort of in your late teenage, early 20 kind of years will trigger that off and you'll have your first episode of sort of mental illness.
3: Okay, well, let's define terms. If somebody isn't familiar with the term, bipolar and a manic episode, what does all that mean?
1: So bipolar disorder, it used to be called uh, many years ago manic depression, and so bipolar means swinging kind of between two poles, and Mm so uh, you might have times when you're... um, you become manic, so hypermanic, where you're super productive and um, in that sort of phase a lot of very creative people kind of do their best work. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you can swing a little too high and have an acute manic episode where you might um, become delusional. You might do things like you believe the newsreader on the TV is speaking about you or to you. You might oh, wow. read things in the newspaper and your brain almost plays a trick on you where you think the words might mean something else.
3: Sounds like paranoia.
1: Yeah, almost. So mm-hmm. so it's like um, all the signals in your brain become confused and the way you are seeing the world feels very real to you. So the things that you're seeing or um, hearing or reading feel extremely real to you but in reality that's not what's actually happening Mm. and so your friends and family can become very very concerned about you at that time and people might do things that they regret down the track you know they might spend too much money they might go out and you know attempt to buy or sell a house you know do things that can have a huge impact on their lives and so it's important that people get help at that phase and at the other end you can swing then after this amazing high, too low, and get very, very bad depression.
3: And what causes this? Is this a chemical imbalance in the brain?
1: Yeah, so a chemical imbalance in the brain, and they don't know what causes it, but there is a hereditary sort of trend to it. So in my case, my auntie had it. I've got a cousin with it, so it sort of can come down the family line, but often it's something, it might be drug use of marijuana that triggers it off in someone. Mm -hmm. That's sort sort of been... Um, shown, But in my case, it was, yeah, this period of intense stress that sort of then flicked that switch and sort of turned that on, I guess, in my life.
3: And so when you were not being yourself, that was a manic episode?
1: Yeah, yeah.
3: So that was a very high, high, but too high.
1: Yes, yeah, yeah. And so that's when sort of, you know, your friends and family go, hang on, what's what's happening with this person? They mm-hmm. might be talking to fast, you know, becoming delusional, not sleeping at all. So someone might have two hours sleep a night and be functioning, you know, Mm -hmm. still really well or, you know, doing a lot and, uh, you know, racing around the house, doing paintings, doing lots of projects, but not sleeping and not eating.
3: Mm. Yeah. So here you were, a young adult, told that you're bipolar, you have a mental illness. What impact did that have on you emotionally?
1: I remember, um, sort of when they give you medication, you kind of snap out of this phase. And I remember kind of snapping out of it and going, What's happened? Like, I was meant to be starting a university course that I'd tried extremely hard to get into. And I, while I was sick, I'd got the news that I'd been accepted into this course and my parents had um, made the decision that I wouldn't go ahead with that and accepted a different degree, which turned out to be fine, but all this stuff happens and you you come out of it and kind of go, well, what now with my life? And I remember the specialist, the psychiatrist saying, you know, if you were my daughter, I'd just say, stay on your medication for life and don't live a stressful life.
3: Don't and live don't live
1: a stressful life. And I was like, "Well, what does that mean?" Yeah, you know, I exactly I wanted to go on and do two degrees kind of simultaneously because you were yeah. highly
3: successful before this.
1: I was a high achiever. You know, I'd won an Australian Study Tour Award, been able to meet the Prime Minister. You know, had so the sky had was my the future kind of you. planned yeah, out. Yeah. yeah, and so to then have this kind of label, I kind of went, "Well, well what now for my life? Does that mean that?" You know, my life is kind of over, and I have to live sort of a dumbed-down kind of life and mm. try and avoid all types of stress. Uh, yeah, as or, a young
3: adult, you're thinking, the sky's the limit. I want to achieve all I can. And now you're kind of told, well, don't aim for the stars. Yeah. Is that kind of how you took it?
1: Yeah, yeah, in some ways. And so, you know, any time I would try anything, people are sort of like, oh, don't, well, just be careful, because remember, you know, you could get sick again. And so mm. you've always got that in the back of your mind.
3: yeah. So what happened next?
1: Well, what happened next was I kind of you know, my faith kind of went, you know, no, I still believe that I am created for a purpose and I can't live my life not living out that purpose because I'm too scared because of this mental illness. So Mm -hmm. I went on to complete my two degrees at a university and So you um, did it anyway. I did it anyway. I went and um Spent a semester living in Indonesia with my university, living with a Muslim family, um, learning Indonesian. So I kind of went ahead with my plans. But um, did you have any stress? Of course there was stress, yeah. How would you do? I did okay, yeah. Okay? Yeah, yeah.
3: Well, you had uh, the medication that was stabilizing I had, you?
1: Yeah, I had medication, and I mean, there were little blips along the way, um, but life went on and and was good, and I ended up marrying... My high school sweetheart, um, lovely Christian man at the age of 22. And um, yeah, life was good. End up working for the Uniting Church and Uniting Care, running their national sort of campaigns, well, um, fundraising campaigns. And um, so life is good. Life was good. Yeah, fantastic.
3: But then what happened?
1: So when we came to have our first much long for child, we'd been married six years and seven years and we decided to have a baby and you know, we couldn't be I couldn't have been a more prepared mother to be. So I had the nursery decked out, I had everything prepared, checking into a private hospital to have my baby. I'd thought of everything except the impact that having a baby could have on someone with bipolar. No one had sort of mentioned to me to look out for anything. No one said anything No, I told my obstetrician I had bipolar It was sort of noted down in my file But yeah, nothing, no warning kind of that something could go wrong And I had my beautiful baby boy The birth all went to plan and Mm -hmm. well And then afterwards I just noticed that for the next three nights I couldn't sleep at all even when the baby was sleeping And so I sort of, my husband and I, I said to him You know, something's wrong, I need to see someone Something's not right
2: You're listening to The Story. Today, Mariska Meldrum is once again sharing about her life experiences, this time focusing on mental health issues. We just heard how she knew something wasn't right after the birth of her first child. Next, we'll find
0: out how things dramatically take a turn for the worse when we return. The Story. If this program has highlighted something you'd like prayer for, we'd love to pray for you.
2: We're continuing with Eric Scatterbo chatting with Mariska Meldrum, who is sharing about her experiences dealing with mental illness. Before the break, we heard how the birth of her first child went to plan, but then she intuitively knew something wasn't right and she couldn't sleep at all, even when the baby was sleeping.
1: As you don't sleep, you start, you know, your mental health starts declining. At that stage, I could still ask for help, but, you know, rapidly declining into becoming more and more delusional. And so, I mean, the hospital kind of let me go home with my new baby. And when we got home, my mental health just kept going downhill to the point that I was completely delusional and thought that my husband might even want to be killing me. So that's wow. the type of thing that can happen with bipolar wear. Yeah. And I honestly believed that was happening.
3: I mean, being a new parent. Is stressful enough as yeah, it is. Yeah. Much less having a mental illness and having delusions.
1: Yeah. So you're, you know, it was a really terrible thing to happen to a brand new mum. You know, yeah. you're trying to look after a baby. Your family's like, what is happening here? And sort of the medical stuff, I guess, have let you down in some way instead of just saying, well, tell us what ends up happening. And, you know, your health insurance is shoving you out the door. Oh, wow. Um, And so in the end, the police turned up because I'd rung them thinking my husband was trying to murder me and instead ended up hauling me away to the kind of the local psychiatric ward. And the way they transport people in situations of mental health like that um, is in the back of a police divvy van. So I'd had a baby six days before and, you know, wasn't feeling the best and kind of shoved in the back of this disgusting, smelly police van. Um, wow, and quite a off. contrast. Yeah, definitely. And so for me, you know, growing up very quite protected to sort of be in the back of this police divvy van, you know, with vomit and urine everywhere, and I'm thinking, oh, wow. what has happened? Like, I thought I was just going in to have a baby. And, um, yeah, I was put in a ward, sharing a ward with a guy, withdrawing from heroin who was schizophrenic. You know, the carers were almost worse than the other patients,
3: Oh, wow. Just this, this, is this horrific like treatment. Yeah. yeah,
1: and I kind of went, well, what happened to my baby? Like, what's going on? And so I was put into this situation that I never would have dreamt could ever sort of happen to me.
3: And how long were you there?
1: Um, my husband worked really hard to try and get me out of there. But once you're taken into a ward, you're sort of made a ward of the state, and you can't actually get out without a psychiatrist sort of discharging you and so he was trying to get me into a private hospital but couldn't so I was there for about two weeks and then was moved to a private um, hospital but I didn't come home till my baby was about six weeks old to my little boy. Six weeks later. Six weeks later.
3: Now of course if you're having delusions you want to be under observation so you can't hurt yourself and everything
1: yeah Yeah, definitely were you
3: able to get well or what did they do to help you get well
1: i mean the key thing is to they give you medication and then you know you respond to the medication fairly quickly actually and become well again so Um, you were feeling
3: pretty good pretty quick
1: yeah i mean it took a while but but then sort of within two weeks i was back you know to thinking properly but then you've Mm -hmm. got a sort of they described it like an egg, you know, the the shell is very fragile, so you've got to rebuild,
3: you mm. know, that shell okay.
1: around yourself and around your brain and become stronger again.
3: So then finally you went home?
1: Yeah, I went home and so kind of came back sort of traumatised and one thing I noticed was like, you know, you're in hospital, where are the visitors, like, you know, are people praying Nobody for me? Nobody visited you. I did have some, but you kind of go, you know, people are scared to come into a psychiatric mm. ward So I came home and kind of, you know, each time I've been unwell, I have I know that my church and my, I would expect my church to have been praying for me. And I remember once my husband saying, you know, no, we didn't tell people because we wanted to protect your privacy. And I remember thinking, this is just crazy. Like if I was a young mum who'd got cancer and gone into hospital, you know, everyone would have been rallying around. But, you know, anything with mental health is sort of, brushed under the carpet and sort of kept a bit of a secret.
3: It's kind of a delicate thing. I mean, it's a hard thing to deal with.
1: Yeah, it is. Yeah. Because
3: you don't want to be stigmatized, but yet you should have people praying for you and supporting you.
1: Yeah, you don't want to be stigmatized. And um, so when I came out, I kind of went, this is so wrong. Like the treatment of, you know, women who've just had babies being sharing a room or a ward with men And it was actually, you know, there's been a lot of cases where women have been raped in those situations in the ward that I was in. But yet that
3: was standard procedure? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah,
1: yeah. So the ward's since been demolished, but terrible reports and terrible things going on in there and just the treatment of people in there. I was just so horrified. So I came out and kind of said, I'm going to speak up about this, you Mm -hmm. know. I'd done a few things with the media before, and so I said, look, I can speak up about it, but those people who are still in there don't have a voice, you know. No one's listening to them because anything they say is just dismissed as, you know, that's coming from someone who's crazy crazy (laughs) or not in their right mind.
3: Yeah, yeah. So you became an advocate.
1: Yeah, so I became an ambassador for a mental health research project that um, a university and a hospital were doing. And so... I kind of had to say to myself, swallow your pride and, you know, tell your story. Um, So we were on the project, which is a TV show in Mm -hmm. Australia on Channel 10. And so they came out and spent a day with our family and sort of we were able to talk about what had happened. And, you know, the lack of understanding of mental health for mums, you know, beyond just postnatal depression, what other things can happen and what facilities there are to deal with that. Yeah, and then able to speak in front of um, politicians and in print media, just sort of raising awareness of the fact that more research had to be done into Mm -hmm. this area.
3: Wow, so you went from suffering it to actually helping out, being a part of the answer.
1: Yeah, and I guess I, you know, I'm a Christian and so for me, you know, what's the purpose of my life? What can I do with something that's happened to me? How can I turn that into good to help others? And so... I also started writing a blog called Bipolar Mums because, and once I started that, I got a lot of messages from women saying, you know, I'm someone with bipolar, I'm wanting to be a mum, but I'm too scared, you know, Mm. about what will happen or if I'll be able to be a good mum. And so just being able to reassure women, you know, that you can still go on and, you know, have children and be Mm. an incredible mum. This doesn't have to define you or your relationship with your children.
3: But there are some things you should know about.
1: Yeah, and one thing that I really advocate about is, you know, plan. So make sure that you're aware of what can happen if you have a baby, if you have a mental illness or bipolar, you know, what that shift in hormones can do to your mental health and be prepared for it because that was one thing that I Mm -hmm. hadn't been aware of.
3: Okay, you mentioned your faith, you're a Christian. What role did your faith play in journeying through your mental illness?
1: It's been really important. I mean, at first, you tend to blame God and go, why me? Like, why did I have to, why did this have to happen to me? You were
3: born blind in one eye, then you had the mental illness, so, yeah.
1: And I remember thinking, you know, there's four kids in my family and all the hereditary, you know, things I seem to have got. And so, you kind of go, you know, that's not really fair, God. Mm Why me? But I think when you turn that into something you can help others with, Mm -hmm. so with my blindness, I now work for Christian Blind Mission, helping people in developing countries, and with my mental health, being able to be an ambassador and speak about it, you know, makes you think, well, maybe God allowed this to happen so that I could help others. And certainly while I was unwell, particularly after my baby was born, I'm all alone in this psychiatric ward feeling unsafe, um my faith was all I had to rely on. And I remember Mm -hmm. just before I had the baby lying in bed and I heard God's voice saying, something's going to happen, but it's all going to be okay. And I thought he was kind of referring to me having the baby and didn't know that that was he was talking about what would happen afterwards. But, you know, I would sit in the psych ward and listen to Christian CDs just to try and hold on to something Because even when you are unwell, you still own your own faith. It's not like you forget God. you know you know what's still going on and you remember it afterwards. and I yeah, I really clung on to my faith when I thought everyone else had abandoned me.
3: Hmm. So he is with us in the valleys. Yeah. Now, looking back on all you've been through, what do you want our listeners to know about mental illness in general and specifically bipolar? What are some misconceptions that you want to address?
1: Well, I think one of the misconceptions I kind of come across is, um, you know, if you're working with someone bipolar, you have to be watching out for them because they could be manic or do something crazy and, at the, you know, in the next minute they could be depressed and not able to work. Mm. Um, you know, I was diagnosed when I was 18 and I've gone on to have an amazing career working in Christian not-for-profits and... You know, it hasn't affected my work because I've been able to manage it with medication. Um, But, you know, it's embarrassing for someone to come out. It can feel embarrassing to come out and tell people about your mental illness and that can stop you from being honest with others. So I would say if someone ever confides in you about a mental illness, the way you respond is really important, you know, with um, empathy.
3: Mm, I was going to say, how should we respond?
1: Just, you know, being empathetic, but kind of treating them like, oh, okay, that's interesting. So tell me more about Mm -hmm. what that means for you, rather than kind of quickly changing the subject. Um, Yeah. Yeah.
3: Well, I mean, in this day and age, almost everybody, either in your own family or a family close to you, has some type of mental illness that they're going through. So we need to become more aware just to be a good neighbor.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, there's been a lot done to kind of destigmatize depression Mm -hmm. Um, but things like bipolar or schizophrenia you know people are still a little bit unsure about what they are or what that means the person will be like yeah
3: okay to wrap up our conversation today if someone's listening today and has been diagnosed with bipolar or some mental illness what words would you have for them
1: I always say to people who ask me, like, it is not the end of your life, you know. Um, For me in the Bible, I know God promises me that, you know, there's hope for the future. And, you know, there's that image of a branch that's been burnt, but out of that branch comes this new green shoot. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it was like that, you know, your diagnosis can feel like it's the end of your life. But these new shoots come up and there's always hope. And, you know, you can go on to live an incredible life full of purpose that impacts others and your mental health doesn't define who you are.
3: Thank you so much for your message of encouragement and sharing your story once again.
1: Thank you. That was
3: Eric Scadabo chatting with Mariska Meldrum about the
2: mental health challenges she's faced relating to bipolar disorder. As she mentioned earlier, she's had a blog that can be found at bipolarmums.com. That's bipolarmums.com. .com Well, for the second time, we can see how God has worked remarkably in Mariska's life. Last time, we heard how her vision was healed, and this time, we've heard how God has helped her overcome the stigma associated with mental illness and how she is now helping others with her blog. A wonderful example of how God helps us to overcome. He's able to bestow on us a crown of beauty. Instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair, as it says in the book of Isaiah. Thanks for joining us for Mariska's sharing yet another way God has worked in her life. Until next time, I'm Jimmy Colfax, encouraging you to share your story with someone
0: today. Next time on The Story.
1: My professors, my lecturers at the university had a lot of confidence in me. They could give me tasks thinking I would be able to do them, but I don't do them well. So my heart is broken because now I seem to be of disappointment to people because now they had high expectations of me, but now I'm not delivering enough according to their expectations. That broke my heart.
2: Brenda Uwabunu is from Rwanda and has a deep faith in the Lord. However, in her young adult years, both sides of her face became paralyzed, due to stress while she was at university. We'll
0: find out how the Lord healed her, both physically and spiritually, next time. The Story. story. Just another way vision is connecting faith to life. This program is a production of Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, see vision.org.au.